And we're going to see dozens of production applications that will be publicly spoken about, not just in automotive, medical, dental, and aerospace, but other markets as well, as we see additive becoming ubiquitous across every sub-segment of the manufacturing vertical. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Today, we're talking about additive manufacturing. And if you're not convinced about what additive can do or whether now is the right time for it, then this episode is for you. What was once a manufacturing process reserved for low-volume prototyping has now found its home in both high-volume prototyping and a wide variety of production applications. And during a time when some of the most pressing challenges facing the manufacturing sector include regaining control over supply chains, creating a more sustainable manufacturing environment, and replacing the repetitive manual labor jobs that no one wants to do, the timing really couldn't be any better. My guest today will break all of this down for you and also let you in on what he refers to as the dirty little secret of additive manufacturing. Let me introduce him. Jeff Mize joined Post Process Technologies as CEO in January of 2016. He has a proven track record of scaling startups in new markets and driving consistent annual triple-digit growth. At Post Process, Jeff is laser-focused on continuing to expand the team, further enhancing the solution offering and driving the global go-to-market strategy to capitalize on the tremendous worldwide demand for automated and intelligent 3D post-processing, post-printing solutions, a market pioneered by Post Process. Prior to joining Post Process, Jeff was the commercial leader at Climate Corporation, a Silicon Valley startup that was the first to bring data science solutions to the agricultural industry. Climate Corporation was purchased by Monsanto for $1.1 billion. Before joining Climate, Jeff was the EVP of Global Sales and Business Development at Navtech, leading the meteoric rise of digital map sales to $1.5 billion. His dynamic leadership galvanized a fast-growing team that was intently focused on delivering unique solutions to customers in over 80 countries. Jeff was a key part of the executive team driving the company's 2004 New York Stock Exchange IPO for $2.2 billion and its acquisition by Nokia for $8.1 billion in 2008. Jeff began his career at Honeywell after graduating from the University of Illinois with a degree in electrical engineering. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be here. Well, it's awesome to have you. And Jeff, I, I know you, you started your career in in, in what, or a lot of your careers have revolved around taking analog processes and digitizing them. And I thought it might be interesting to sort of just talk about that passion and maybe a little bit about your journey that's led you to where you are to date. Sure. Yeah. I, I wish I could say that I had a predefined roadmap that I was going to be one of the key drivers of Industry 4.0, but it just didn't 
didn't have the plan, but that's how it's worked out. So as you, as you mentioned, I started my career at Honeywell for a couple of years as an engineer and was working with Hall Effect sensors, which back in the day was a new technology. And then after a great 12-year run at Honeywell, I jumped into the startup world and joined Navtech, a digital mapping company, where we took the analog road network and digitized it. And so made it easier for consumers to get from point A to point B, leveraging big data and computers. And then, as you mentioned, it was a, a right place, right time. The company was growing very quickly. In 2001, when I joined, not many people knew what digital maps were, nor did I. A former Honeywell colleague had brought me over to be part of his team. And we were the only company that was actually driving the roads. And so we started in automotive. And then once portable navigation devices were launched in the 2004-2005 timeframe, with customers like Garmin, we really saw people starting to embrace digital maps, and then they became available on handsets. And so after taking the company public in 2004, we were eventually acquired by Nokia in 2008, and they had a vision of putting maps on every phone, which back in 2008 seemed like a pretty novel concept. And now it seems like if you don't have a map on a phone, you probably need to get a new phone. And so from there, I went to Climate Corporation, and at Climate, Dave Friedberg, uh, one of the co-founders was the first to be able to ingest terabytes of data and data on its own, especially to farmers, isn't very valuable. We would analyze that data and analysis is good, but where we really made our mark with the agricultural community is taking that analysis and providing insights and recommendations. And at Climate, we were able to do that down to the kilometer by kilometer range, helping farmers supplement their intuition with data-driven insights and recommendations. And so again, being the first company to do it uh, gave us a unique advantage in the market. And Monsanto saw the revolutionary power of what we were doing and acquired us a couple of years into my tenure there. And then from there, I uh, was going to take some time off and become a full-time investor. My wife, Thought that was great the first month. The second month, she asked me what I did all day. And then the third month, she said, you being home 100% of the time is not good for our relationship. So I jumped back into the, into the workforce and through a former Navtech colleague, met Daniel Hutchinson, our founder here at Post Process. Incredible inventor, just a, a, a fountain of ideas. And he was explaining to me that the third step in the additive process, and here at Post Process, we're strictly focused on additive manufacturing, and we call it additive manufacturing versus 3D printing because we don't do anything in the consumer space, strictly B2B enterprise. And so when I first met Daniel, Q4 of 2015, he explained to me how he was digitizing the tribal knowledge of technicians. And it took me several conversations to unpack that and understand what he meant, but it was very analogous to what we had done at Climate leveraging the power of data and analytics to take a purely analog intuitive process and digitize it. And same thing at NFTech, where we took an analog road network and digitized it. So here at Post Process, first, we've automated the third step of the process. And when we think about additive, we think about it as design, print, and post-print. And so the first two steps of design and print, fully digitized, fully connected. That third step has often been referred to as the dirty little secret in the industry. And up until recently, manual labor was used to do the post printing. And post printing can mean different things to different people. Our core focus here at Post Process is support removal and surface finish. And so manual labor is used to take the supports off. And even today, you have customers that have technicians 
in some cases, engineers sanding apart to get the finish they need. So Daniel had a vision to digitize that tribal knowledge, leveraging data analytics, machine learning, and eventually artificial intelligence to be able to automate the third step in the process. And with the growth in prototyping volumes, and now the explosion in companies looking at using additive for production, not only do you need that third step to be automated, but you also need it to be connected. So long way of getting to where we're at today. So I joined as the fourth employee of the company. So the earliest stage startup that I've done in my career. And we're now in the process of scaling and super proud of the team that we built headquartered here in Buffalo, but also have a presence in the South of Europe for our European operation. We'll soon be expanding to APAC. And we have over 300 customers that have over 600 of our solutions in operation at their facilities. Well, congrats on what you've accomplished already. Sounds like a pretty, I mean, I know it's a really interesting space to be a part of, but I imagine, you know, you, you thought you were done there for a while outside of investing and here you are in the thick of it again. And, and at least you're in the middle of something pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. And when I first met Daniel, I had heard about 3D printing and my first thought was, once the part is printed, isn't it done? You know, this ties back to the dirty little secret. When you go to a trade show and you see a 3D printed part or an additively manufactured part, it looks great. looks like it has the finish of an injection molded part and you don't see any supports. And basically due to the laws of gravity, as that build plate on the 3D printer is dropping, right? It's like a standard printer on the XY planes, but that build plate drops little bit by little bit to be able to build that 3D printed parts. And due to the laws of gravity, you need to have supports to be able to support the unique geometries that you can only do with additive manufacturing. And so as Daniel was explaining to me why he was focused on support removal and surface finish, I thought there's got to be just a tiny market for this overall. As I dug into it and, and reconnected with some of my former manufacturing friends from my Honeywell days and started learning about the challenges associated with support removal and surface finish, yeah, I was amazed. And the fact that it was such an overlooked step in the end-to-end -end additive process, I thought as volumes grow, throughput's going to become a big problem. It's really more of an art than a science, the third step in the process today, whereas the design step and the print step are fully digitized, fully connected, as I mentioned. And so turning this third step from an art into a science and digitizing that tribal knowledge of technicians is helpful in the prototyping world, essential in the higher volume prototyping world where consistency comes into play. And then you can't live without an automated as well as connected solution when you're looking at production applications. And I'm sure we'll we'll dive into it in, in a bit more detail, Joe, but with what's been exposed in terms of global supply chain challenges and labor issues, the need to have an end-to-end -end automated and connected process where data is flowing has really become a high priority for the vast majority of our manufacturing customers. Well, I'm excited to go deep on a bunch of this stuff. So let, let's start back in, you know, back at the beginning, I, you know, I think something that a perception I think a lot of people have out there still is that additive is a great tool for prototyping. And maybe that was true a decade ago, or I don't know what the timeline really looks like. But I'm just curious to hear from you as somebody who's right in the thick of it right now, watching the technology change and the applications change so fast. What Tell us you know, how additive has evolved and, and how it can be used in ways that maybe it, it didn't used to be able to be used. I would break it into four different categories. It's still being used today for a lot of prototyping applications. 
Many of those prototyping applications are used for form fit and function, and those parts don't see the light of day outside of R&D. And that's what 3D printing or additive manufacturing was used for for the first couple of decades of its existence. But the use cases have expanded significantly. The second use case are prototypes that make it outside of R&D, whether it's for internal use in other departments, or we see more and more additive parts making their way to customers. And when a part goes outside of the R&D lab, the finish of the part is important and you just can't have supports on that part. And so that would be the second category that the volume may still be low, but the need for the consistency and the need for a better looking finish is important. Third category is higher volume prototyping. Over the my almost now seven years in the additive industry, some of our larger customers, and again, the majority of our 600 plus solutions are still used for prototyping. I'll get to the fourth use case with production here in a minute. But that third category of higher volume prototyping, we had customers doing a couple thousand parts per year. On the high end, maybe it was 10,000 parts. The majority of our customers now measure their annual output of prototype parts from their additive operations in the tens of thousands. And in fact, we have customers that are doing hundreds of thousands of parts per year. And so to achieve that throughput, especially with the labor shortages that we're all experiencing, very difficult. And so you can't brute force it with just manual labor and traditional tools like wet blasters. We measure attended versus unattended technician time. When you're using a wet blaster with those big OSHA gloves and you're holding a 3D printed part and you're spraying off the supports, the attended to unattended technician time is one-to-one. -one. In our typical solution, we can reduce labor at a minimum, typically 50%, up to 98%. And so when you go from producing a few thousand parts a year to tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of parts per year, having an automated post-printing step becomes a requirement. And then the fourth category is production. Pre-pandemic, we had a handful of a true production applications that we were working on with customers. Today, that number is over four dozen and is growing week in and week out. The interesting thing in that fourth category is that we've been working with our automotive customers, with our medical and dental customers, as well as with our aerospace and defense customers on production applications for several years. Those are the three, I'm sure, as you all know, the three biggest markets for additive. But we're also seeing production applications in other segments of the market, a lot of momentum in consumer. And so the need to have an automated as well as connected solution where that data is flowing from design to print to post print and beyond to things like digital inspection and sorting and packaging isn't a nice to have. It's an essential requirement so that you can achieve things like scalability, traceability, critically important is safety and something that is on all of our minds day in and day out is sustainability. And so low volume prototyping is still happening today for R&D work. Low volume as well as high volume prototyping for parts that go outside of R&D has become a very common. Higher volume prototyping is, is increasing day in and day out. And I, I often get asked the question, why do customers prototype so many parts? And when you think about using an automotive example, and we're under NDAs with all of our customers, so I can't name specific customers, but take a typical automotive manufacturer. In the old days, they would have their wood shop 
car of three or four different rear view mirrors. And they would do the testing, look at the design, do the wind tunnel testing. Today, with 3D printing, first, you can print geometries that were unthinkable with lattice structures and other things you just can't do from an uh, artistry standpoint. But you can make a minor modification, 3D print the part, put it in one of our post-printing automated solutions, and the next day, test the new design. And so in the past, an automotive manufacturer may test three or four or five different rearview mirrors. Now they're testing 30, 40, 50, in some cases, even 100 different concepts for a rear view mirror. And that's one of hundreds of components where they're doing using additive manufacturing to test different components in automotive. And so when you add that all together, you go from a couple thousand a year to tens of thousands per year to hundreds of thousands per year from a prototyping perspective. And oftentimes when you go to an automotive show, many parts on that car are 3D printed. From conversations I've had on this podcast, Jeff, and elsewhere, I've gathered that a lot of people think of additive manufacturing in kind of a silo. And I know you're an advocate for sort of reframing that mindset and asking, how do we integrate additive into manufacturing processes we're already using? So if I'm right here that I interpreted what I think I've heard from you, I'm wondering if you could kind of elaborate or clarify that for us. Sure. In fact, I listened just last night to the podcast with Raj from Siemens. Mm -hmm. And I agree with many of the comments that he made that in the early days, especially on the manufacturing floor, the 3D printers were off in the corner and they were in a silo by themselves. In prototyping, that's okay. You, you can have that happen. In higher volume prototyping, it becomes more of a challenge. But in manufacturing, and I was talking to an executive at one of our customers, and he was saying that at post-process, we have a full stack solution of software, hardware, and chemistry. And you're saying that your investment in the software is absolutely critical for us. And one reason that we choose you and have multiple solutions, because we can't have additive manufacturing in our plants as a silo. And he pointed out two things. He said, one, we can't have it as a silo from a digital perspective. So having an open API architecture and having that data feed across the additive manufacturing process, but also into an MES system and up into our MRP system, our overall manufacturing system is really important. And he said, secondly, some of our future plans will have a subtractive component of manufacturing as well as an additive component. And so they need to not only work together digitally, but also physically. And so that we can achieve the higher volume goals that we have for these combination parts or even just additive specific parts. And so since the inception of post-process, Daniel started by writing code, as I mentioned, to di di digitize the tribal knowledge of the technicians. And what we found is that automation is important, but that digital connectivity is key so that you don't have additive being a separate cell in a manufacturing operation. It needs to be integrated throughout the overall manufacturing process. And you know, one thing that is to that is the fact that if you have additive in a silo by itself, it's not going to be as sustainable as if you have it tied into your overall end-to-end -end manufacturing process. Oh, that makes plenty of sense. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Mary, take it away. Yes, so I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Mary Keough. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations. We meet up digitally to learn, 
ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to get better at a manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. Oh, and on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where our attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together all week long between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. I want to talk a little bit more about post-print and maybe for, for my own sake, as well as those who don't necessarily fully understand it. You started getting into it a little bit earlier on and described post-print as the dirty little secret of the industry. But could you give us a few examples maybe of, of you know, where you're using post-print applications, why it really matters? Sure. Yeah. And so most folks in the industry and most folks in manufacturing call it post-processing. Mm-hmm. Our founder, Daniel, had the foresight, much like Tissue Kleenex, to name the company post-processing. Mm-hmm. So it gets a little confusing, and, and I don't know if we have time for stories, but one quick anecdote. Mm-hmm. So when we were raising our Series A round uh, back in 2019, one of our investors set up a meeting for me with Jeff Amelt, former CEO of GE, now at NEA, doing a lot of different things, but he's a partner at New Enterprise Associates in Silicon Valley. And so back in my Honeywell days, we had a joint venture with GE. I met Jeff along with Jack Welch at a, a QBR, quick QBI, quick business intelligence meeting. And so I sat down with him. It was a one-on-one meeting. I sat down with him and I said, Jeff, met you probably 15 years ago up in Minneapolis. He jokingly said, oh, sure, I remember. And I was one of 2,000 people in the room. So here we are sitting down talking just one-on-one. And he said, ah, post-process, the dirty little secret of the industry. And I said, you know our company? It's like, no, no, I, I don't know post-process technologies. I'm, you know, I'm here today to learn more about it. But when we bought Arcam and Concept Laser, when GE bought those two metal printer companies in Sweden and Germany, he said, I didn't know about what goes on after the print. And so he said, we often call it the, the dirty little secret that once you get the part off the printer, people that aren't in the know about additive manufacturing think you're done. But in fact, there's quite a bit of work to do once the part comes off the printer. And again, there's a number of different post-print functions. Here at Post-Process, we're focused on support removal for both polymers as well as metals, and then surface finish. I'm sorry, surface finish for both polymers and metals, and then support removal on polymers. So it was fun to be able to sit down with Jeff and and talk about his perspective on additive manufacturing overall. And the, the other thing is that there's been some barriers to utilizing additive at scale. And again, I I talk about both prototyping and production. Focusing on production, there have been three or four key barriers. One has been print speeds. The existing printer companies have come up with new technology, as well as a number of new entrants in the space. That print speed isn't really that big of a challenge anymore to be able to achieve. And we're not talking tens of millions or hundreds of millions of parts 
per month right now, like you see in injection molding. But print speeds, we're in a pretty good spot right now with the developments the printer companies have made. Secondly, our materials. And in the old days, the traditional printer companies, the Stratasys and 3D Systems had closed printers where it was only their materials. We see printers opening up now. And you see some of the major players like Henkel, major material science players like Henkel, BASF, Avonic, now getting into the additive manufacturing market and providing, for example. A few years ago, there were a couple dozen resins you could 3D print. There's now over 400 resins. And we see some new entrants like Jabil, uh, who's a close partner of Post Process, that have developed their own powders for 3D printing and see the opportunity to increase the material properties that you need for 3D printing, but also reduce the cost. And so a lot of advancements over the past three to five years on material development, which was a barrier because of cost, material properties. Third is the open architecture that I've touched on a few times. Traditionally, the printer companies have had a closed architecture mindset. That's changing. And being able to exchange that data from the CAD file to the printer to post printing and beyond has become very important. Some of the newer printer OEMs have come into the market with an open API architecture and some of the traditional printer companies now realize that to be able to achieve what needs to happen from a production standpoint with additive, you can no longer have a closed architecture. And as we touched on, integrating additive into the overall subtractive manual manufacturing workflow requires open architectures. And then of course, near and dear to my heart and everyone here at Post Process is automating and connecting the post printing is essential. So tying it back to the dirty little secret of the industry, it was often overlooked and you could brute force support removal and surface finish with manual labor. If you think just about that first category of products that never sees the light of day and you're doing dozens of parts or maybe a couple hundred parts per month. But as you get into parts that need to have a better finish where you get into the higher volume, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of prototypes. And then in, in production, you can no longer ignore that third step in the process. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about how automation fits into the picture there. Sure. And so let me tie it to two things. One is the automation of the process itself. I mentioned attended versus unattended technician time. Mm -hmm. And so with our solutions, when the part comes off the printer, the technician or engineer will put the part or a batch of parts into our solution. And since it's software driven, they'll hit play on the controller and the, our solution will run through its cycle. And let's use support removal as an example. It may take anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half. And the technician will hit play, go off and do much higher value activities for that cycle time and then we'll be alerted when the cycle's done come back remove those parts and then do whatever they do with them as the step after and so in the prior days before we came onto the scene and created the post printing market and we do have some competitors recognizing that this is a multi-billion dollar opportunity the technician was stuck there either with the wet blaster or what we call a dump tank or in the case of surface finish sanding apart and so the entire post-process, post-printing operation required that technician's attendance. So that would be one example of the automation. Secondly, is as we're processing the parts, we're collecting a lot of data. And today we're using that data in a couple of different areas. One is understanding how the machine is functioning. 
And so there's a machine learning component to our heavily censored hardware. And as I touched on, we have software, hardware, and chemistry as the three components of our full stack solution. And so as we see our solutions going onto manufacturing floors, uptime is absolutely critical. And so if we see that, for example, a pump is drawing more current than usual, doing preventative maintenance to replace that pump before it fails would be one example of being able to collect that data, analyze that data, and take action to increase the our customers' uptime. And then secondly, and it's the early days, but there's an artificial intelligence component where we're analyzing how well did we get the supports off of that part? And is there an opportunity to modify the design in the CAD software that may in fact extend the print time, doesn't change the form fitter function of the product, but may extend the print time, say 15 minutes, but you could decrease the post print time by 30 or 45 minutes. And again, in the low volume prototyping world, saving 15, 20, 30 minutes per batch didn't make that big of a difference. In the production world, every second counts. And so utilizing that data and we're focused on implementing artificial intelligence and working not only with the printer companies, but the software companies where using generative design, we're going to be able to automatically modify that part to optimize the end-to-end -end process flow. So not, not something that's in production yet, but part of our vision here at Post Process, and we believe will be a catalyst to have additive manufacturing used in more and more applications going forward. Jeff, a few trends that have been talked about at length on this podcast for good reason are challenges around labor and supply chain and manufacturing. What's additive manufacturing's role in helping future-proof us from some of these challenges? The pandemic, as horrific as it was across the world, really exposed some of the global supply chain issues, both in terms of being able to, to get parts moving around the world at the right rate with all the, the challenges that happen from a logistics perspective. With additive manufacturing, you can ship a file, a digital file, very quickly, almost instantaneously, costs almost nothing, and virtually eliminates the carbon footprint. And so by being able to transfer a digital file, instead of having to stand up a bunch of equipment from a manufacturing perspective, that would be one example of helping to overcome some of the global supply chain challenges. The other thing we've seen is that with the growing geopolitical tensions around the world, again, the, the horrible invasion in Ukraine and other geopolitical tensions, ensuring that here in the US or in Germany or in South Korea, whatever country you're in, ensuring that you have critical component production onshore has become more and more of a focus. And so again, the pandemic put a microscope on some of these challenges. And prior to the pandemic, we would often be talking with the director of R&D or somebody from a mid-level management perspective the interest in additive is now in the C-suite because of the need to overcome these global supply chain challenges, to deal with the need for onshoring. And then, of course, the third leg of that stool are the labor shortages. And we continue to see that you know, the, the, the ratio has decreased, but there's something like 1.7 jobs for every one person that is willing to go to work. And finding someone that wants to spend their day taking supports off of an additive part or sanding a part is very challenging. I was talking to one of our dental customers and he gave me some amazing statistics. He said, and I think Raj mentioned this as well, 
the last podcast of yours that I listened to, that that tribal knowledge is going away. And so people in their late 50s, 60s are now retiring and replacing those people to do the manual labor and to replicate that tribal knowledge is very difficult. And so at post processing, you know, as part of industry 4.0 overall, switching that from trying to transfer that manual labor knowledge into digitizing the process and being able to replicate that process and scale that process with computers and equipment is going to be essential. And so our dental customer told us that he is going to use, I'm sorry, he's going to lose 40% of his workforce over the next decade due to retirement. And his volume is going to increase in order of magnitude. And so trying to keep up with demand, if he tried to just replace his existing workforce, person for person would be impossible because the people just aren't available. And again, dental is a, a booming market for additive. It's a great fit because everyone's teeth and jaw is a bit different. And so you could do mass customization at scale. But if we don't have the end-to-end -end process automated, as well as have it digitized, the lack of labor will become the gating factor from a throughput perspective. Jeff, shifting gears here, when you and I last talked, you referenced a passage from Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I'm going to get the quote wrong. I'm just sort of paraphrasing here. But I know that you, you said there were something about two emotions you experienced when starting a company, euphoria and terror. And, you know, as, as somebody who was, you know, found somebody foundational in getting post-process, you know, to where it is today, I'm just kind of curious how those things may have manifested themselves for you in your early days at the company. Great memory. And it, it, it's been a while. And I apologize, Joe, it took us so long to reconnect with how busy things have been on our side. I know on your side as well, but I, I'm not a, I probably should read more. I should probably read more business books. When I joined Climate Corp, I'd been in the startup world for 15 years. One of my colleagues in Soma, downtown San Francisco said, have you read the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things? And I said, no, no I, I haven't. He said, it's a great book. And I said, oh man, you know, I've, been, I've been through a lot from a large corporation perspective as well as a startup perspective. But smart guy took his advice, read this book and my favorite line in the book, and I would recommend the book to, to anyone, in particular entrepreneurs that are either starting a company or in that scale-up phase. My favorite line is that the two, and you got it right, the two emotions you experience as you're starting or scaling a company, are euphoria and terror both enhanced by lack of sleep? Mm -hmm. And you being an entrepreneur yourself, know it well. And I encourage everyone on our team here at Post Process to read that book. And as we're interviewing potential teammates and thinking about, you know, every day has some euphoric moments, every day has some terrifying moments. For me personally, a number of attributes I look for in candidates that I believe will succeed in a startup or scale-up environment. But the three that consistently bubble to the top and the three that I see the most successful people possessing are first, grit, having that courage and resolve to plow through any challenges. Second is resilience. Daniel, our founder, created the automated post-printing market. When you're creating a new market, 95, if not 99%, of responses you get are, no, that doesn't make sense. That's crazy. Why would you do it? I often think about Colonel Sanders and something I had learned. Honeywell sent me to a executive program. And one of the case studies we read was Colonel Sanders back in the 50s got, back in the 50s got rejected. I believe it was like a thousand and nine times. And the thing that always stuck out to me about that number is why didn't he stop at a hundred? Why didn't he stop at 500? You know, geez, why didn't he stop at a thousand? But the thousand and ninth time 
someone accepted his recipe. And so having that resilience to get up early the next morning and stick with it and continue to believe in your product and in your dream is absolutely critical. And then the third area is a sense of humor. And I think it's really important that you need to have some fun, especially in those moments when things are terrifying, but also when things are euphoric and to make sure, make sure that you maintain an even keel. And so tying it back to your question, hard thing about hard things, the challenges and the struggles that Horowitz went through as he was building Opsware are very common in the startup world, not only in tech, but you know the example I gave in the, in the food industry. And it helped me think about the kind of culture that we wanted to create here at Post Process, being an early employee. And then secondly, of course, there's skills that we're looking for, depending on what role we have a potential teammate joining us for. But that grit, that resilience, and that sense of humor are three attributes that I think help people succeed versus giving up too early in the startup world. I love that. I think they're great things to look for. Well, Jeff, is there anything I did not ask you about that you'd like to add to the conversation today? I would say that I know your audience is typically mid-sized manufacturers. If they're not utilizing additive manufacturing today for prototyping, I'd be surprised. I would say that probably be fun to do a poll of your audience. I would say probably 80 or 90% of them have some experience with additive manufacturing, for t- particularly for prototyping. But as I mentioned earlier, Joe, with the advancements in materials, with the incredible increases in print speed, with that digital connectivity, and now with automated post-printing, Utilizing additive as an alternative to some, not a halt, clearly not all, it's not going to replace injection molding, but utilizing additive for higher volume prototyping and some production applications is something that companies want to look at. And especially when you think about the consistency, the throughput, the safety, and the sustainability that you can achieve with additive as well. And so I know you have a very experienced manufacturing audience, but I would encourage folks to not be thinking as we started the discussion 30 minutes ago, not be thinking about additive just for low volume prototyping. There's many more use cases and there's been tremendous advancements. And we're going to see dozens of production applications that will be publicly spoken about, not just in automotive, medical, dental, and aerospace, but other markets as well, as we see additive becoming ubiquitous across every sub-segment of the manufacturing vertical. Great advice. Well, Jeff, really good conversation today. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about post-process? Sure. Postprocess.com has a bunch of information on there about our solutions, as well as customer testimonials, uh, our great team here at Post Processes, and also LinkedIn. Just look up Jeff Mize, Buffalo, CEO Post Process, and always looking forward to meeting potential great teammates. And if anybody's having challenges from automating their post-printing step, we'd love to talk to them uh, overall. And also appreciate what you do week in and week out, Joe. Often get a chance, as I said, when I'm working out to listen to the manufacturing executive And so it's interesting, some of the common themes that we hear uh, from podcast to podcast, as well as some new ideas. So uh, thanks for the effort that you put in making this information available to us all. Oh, I really appreciate you saying that. It's it's a lot of fun to do. I've I have learned just I just can't even believe how much I've learned from doing this for you know, I think you're gonna be episode roughly 128 or something. And it's those are consecutive weeks too. And it's just the knowledge I've been able to absorb from, you know, experts like you and your own niches of manufacturing has been it's been really cool. So I love doing it. 
doesn't even feel like work. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And, and even though you're a Packers fan and I'm a Bears fan, probably <laughs> not good for us to be talking about football right now this season. But being, no, it's really not. Being it's here not. in Buffalo, you got the Bills too. Would be being a Buffalo guy. I, I absolutely, and ninety-nine point five percent of the team here, by just me not being a tried and true lifetime Buffalo Bills fan. So one, one last quick story. It's, it's funny. We, yeah. we have some teammates here uh, in Buffalo that haven't missed a home game in 15, 16, 17 years. No way. And as we know, it hasn't been the uh, the Josh Allen Buffalo team that we're all getting to enjoy this year. Hopefully no. hopefully the injury is just a minor injury, but the loyalty to the to the Bills is incredible. And it's really fun to be here in Buffalo on a regular basis and see the success of the team. You know, it, it, it ties back to when I left Silicon Valley and came to Buffalo, people said, can you really build a startup in Buffalo? And and you can't. And there's been a number of other success stories here in Buffalo, but just that work ethic and that loyalty is one of, I think, the key elements that is helping to drive and propel the success of post-process, as well as the overall startup community here in Buffalo. But I'll tell you, on Sunday or Monday night for that three and a half, four hours, do not call a teammate, do not send them an email, because I guarantee you that they're they're watching the Bills or they're at the game at Orchard Park whether it's a 50 degree sunny day or 50 below and two feet of snow at the stadium. So anyway, very much enjoyed our time together, Joe, and look forward to hopefully reconnecting in the, in the near future. That sounds great. Thanks for doing this, Jeff. My pleasure. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>